Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. There is going to be a wedding, and you're all invited. Most of the time, when we get news of an invitation... I don't know what you're reacting to, Curtis. Uh, most of the time when we get an invitation, uh, there's excitement and anticipation with that. Uh, maybe you remember back to elementary school when it came time for someone's birthday party and they came with the invitations to hand out to their friends in the class and the excitement that comes uh, with receiving that invitation with being included. As we get older, we might outgrow that desire to want to receive those invitations to be a part of the in-group, or maybe, maybe we just get better at hiding that, that we want to be included. I'm not sure. But there's comfort. And knowing that we've been invited, there's comfort in knowing that we haven't been forgotten. Maybe you've experienced that over the last few years, over the last few weeks, that feeling uh, of, of not being forgotten even though you're, you're separated by physical distance. Whether there was a note, whether it was a phone call, whether it was a, a message of some sort, getting to see someone's face on a screen when you weren't able to see their face in person, the comfort that comes with the invitation, with knowing that you're still apart, the knowing that you have not been cast out, and knowing that there is an invitation out there for us. The text we're going to be looking at this morning contains an invitation, an invitation to a wedding banquet that is to end all wedding banquets. This passage invites us to offer praise to God for what he has done. It invites us to celebrate the fact that he conquers all things, to celebrate the fact that he has extended an invitation so that we can participate in relationship with him. As we come in and are a part of this wedding banquet that our God is putting together. Over the course of this series, we've been looking at the, the blessings that are pronounced in the book of Revelation. And last week we were in chapter 16 and, and we saw where, where John described this imagery of seven bowls. Uh, how uh, this imagery is used. We saw how God's judgment is worked out over those who are aligned against him and are aligned against his people. And we're going to be jumping forward today into chapter 19. If you have a Bible and want to open it up there and have the text open in front of you. But before we get to that, it's worth spending a little bit of time summarizing what has happened between where we left things off last week at the end of chapter 16 and where we pick things up today at the beginning of chapter 19. Chapter 17 and 18 continue to expand on this theme of the judgment of God working out against those who have rejected him, who are opposed to his ways and his purposes. Describing in chapter 18, especially God's judgment coming upon Babylon, the epitome of evil. This, this nickname, this moniker that, that John gives to the Roman Empire. This earthly empire persecuting and oppressing God's people as, as he writes this book. And in chapter 18, we get these woes that are pronounced uh, over Babylon by those who were aligned aligned with Babylon and therefore aligned against God. Those who uh, see their own destruction coming because of the destruction of Babylon. 
In chapter 18, verse 9, the kings of the earth mourn. They're terrified at the destruction of Babylon because, because Babylon was their hope of strength and peace and hope and security and all of those things. And if Babylon is gone, that must mean that their destruction is not too far behind. In verse 11, the, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn because the destruction of Babylon means that there's no one around to buy their goods anymore. How are they going to make a living? Babylon is gone. In verse 17, the, the sea captains of the earth weep and mourn because they have become rich through transporting their goods to and from Rome, through buying and selling, doing business with this epitome of evil, and now Babylon's gone. And those who have benefited from this force of evil aligned against the purposes of God are in anguish at the reality that God's judgment has come. And in response to those three woes that we find in chapter 18, as we turn to chapter 19, we find three hallelujahs offered by God's people and those gathered around the heavenly throne. Now that word hallelujah is one that most of the time if you're hearing it, you're just hearing it in church. But it's, so it's worth reminding ourselves that that word hallelujah is a Hebrew word that literally means praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. The Lord, praise the one true God who has established a covenant personal relationship with his people. In response to the mourning that we saw in chapter 18, mourning of those aligned against God, that God has acted to judge evil. In chapter 19, God's people praise him for what he's done. The result of God's defeat of evil is an invitation to his people to come in and be united with him. God's defeated Babylon when we get to chapter 19. He's dealt with those who oppressed his people. And the response to that reality is to praise God. The end of all of this judgment is celebration. Celebration as God and God's people are brought into union with one another. As John is describing what that will be like, the best imagery he can use to describe it is the imagery of a wedding. As the complete union between God and his people becomes a reality in this passage God is praise, and that praise concludes with celebration as God's people participate in God's triumph. We're going to split our passage this morning, nine verses down into small chunks to get at what is unique about each of these three hallelujahs, and I want to try something today. I know you all love audience participation so much, and so I want to give you some of it. Um, every time the word hallelujah shows up in the passage this morning, uh, it's going to be in bold. And so I would invite you, since this is recording for us, God's people praising him, for you to say each hallelujah with me when it shows up. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, I think it's a good idea now. We'll see if it is after the fact. But we'll start by reading Revelation 19, verses 1 to 3. It says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation! And glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. God is praised in these verses because he has defeated evil. And all of heaven joins in the celebration we saw in chapter 16 last week. If you remember back last week in chapter 16, verse 5, an angel praises God because his judgments are just. And now we see the great 
multitude, all of God's people joining in that same praise. God has dealt with evil. He has avenged those who were unjustly put to death. There is no way back for evil because God has triumphed. He has proven himself to be the one true ruler over all things. He's the one who holds power over salvation. He's the one able to save his people out of their suffering and into life with him. He holds all glory. Any claim by anything else in the world to be glorious pales in comparison to the glory of our God. He holds all power, ruling over all creation at all times, the one true king and God before whom all of creation bows down. And for that reason, we offer our praise to him. For that reason, we rejoice that he has defeated evil. Those who have aligned themselves against God, those who have thought themselves to be divine, those who have thought that they are worthy to steal power and glory from God for themselves, those who think that they have been able to deliver salvation through their own means apart from the working of God and therefore don't see fit to acknowledge the commands of God on any matter, they are exposed as frauds. Kids trying on their parents' clothing and unable to fill it out. Liars claiming to possess that which belongs to God and God alone. And because of this opposition to God, they are condemned, receiving the result of their actions. And when that happens, when God truly demonstrates he is who he claims to be and asserts himself, when he moves to defeat evil for all time, his people, those who have suffered under these fraudulent rulers, they rejoice because our God has come to deliver his people into what he has intended for them. God is worthy of our praise because he is a perfect judge. We do not talk about God's judgment being good because we have a list of people who we would really like for God to get because, because we don't like them and we don't have the power to get them on our own. We talk about God's judgment because we know that he is the only being in the entire universe able to truly judge perfectly with no bias, no preferences, simply a judge who always makes the right decision. We might not always see it working out exactly as we would prefer, but we can be confident that God in his perfect wisdom is working at all times and his work will culminate one day in his judgment over all evil, all brokenness, all of the havoc that sin has wreaked on his creation and on his people. God is the perfect judge who defends his people, and for that reason, we, as his people, offer our praise to him, confident in his work, confident in the fact that he is faithful to his promises. And that praise is echoed in these next two verses by those closest to the heavenly throne in verses 4 and 5. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Oh, you didn't forget and then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. God is praised because he is worthy of it. And that might sound like a redundant statement, and to be totally honest, it sort of is. But God is worthy of our praise simply because of who he is. God is worthy of our praise because he is worthy of praise. And that's demonstrated in these two verses through the praises offered by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Back in Revelation chapter 4, John met these figures for the first time as he was given a vision of the heavenly throne room. 
Around God's throne, there were 24 uh, smaller thrones representing the fullness of God's people, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 disciples of the New Testament. And they're seated on these thrones. They have crowns of gold on their heads. And John says that also around the throne, there are these four living creatures. And as he describes describes them, honestly, they sound a little terrifying, and we don't need to get into all of it this morning, but it's important for us to know that in chapter 4, John says that all these living creatures do is offer praise to God. They never stop leading heaven in worship because that is the only rational thing to do when encountering the presence of God. In chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, John describes the worship of heaven. He says, each of the four living creatures... um, I had my verses wrong on the screen up there. Sorry. Uh, Well, my bad. I'll read what I have here in my notes. I apologize. Uh, There it is. Day and night... John says they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That's the picture we get in chapter 4. And now in chapter 19, we are brought back to these heavenly figures and their constant worship of God. The elders and living creatures, they celebrate God for who he is and for what He is accomplished and they join in with the rest of heaven in leading God's people in worship of him for all that he has done and accomplished. Everyone, no matter how great or small, is invited to participate as well to celebrate the fact that in Christ, God has conquered sin and death for all time. But my guess is that for some of us, if we were being honest, and we're in church, so you should probably be honest, we don't find this image all that appealing at first glance. I mean, the only thing that these living creatures ever do is is offer praise to God. And every time that they say this one phrase that they keep repeating over and over and over, these these elders bow down in worship of God and they put their their crowns on the ground before him. I mean, couldn't they save some time and energy and just stay down on the ground the whole time? And this is all that goes on forever. I mean, is there anything in Revelation about bathroom breaks or an intermission or anything like that we might again you're in you're in church so you should be honest some of you might be asking questions like that and if you're worried this morning is that heaven is just an eternal church service that you'll get to heaven and an angel will stand up and say get your hymnals out start at page one we're singing every verse of every song and then when we get to the end we're starting over again if, if that's your concern uh, let me try to ease that a little bit Because I don't necessarily think heaven's an eternal church service, but I do think that in the presence of our God, the fullness of our worship will be realized. That which we experience in part when we gather together for worship with God's people will be experienced fully. And when that happens, all of our other concerns and desires melt away. The summer after I graduated from high school, uh, one part of our family vacation that year was to spend a day at the Baseball Hall of Fame 
in Cooperstown, New York. And that was a day that was exciting for me, and I have to assume, although I'm afraid to ask, was very draining for the rest of my family. Uh, we were there when they opened up that morning, and I looked at every single thing that was on display in that building, everything you could look at. Uh, we saw it all. And as you go through the Baseball Hall of Fame, it, they send you through of all the exhibits and everything, and you end in the plaque room, this big room full of uh, plaques of every member of the Baseball Hall of Fame with their picture and describing who they were and why they've been elected to be a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and after I got through that room, looking at every single plaque, I realized that it was like 3, 4 in the afternoon, and I hadn't eaten lunch. And it was the first, and if we're being honest, only time in my life where I skipped a meal and didn't feel bad about it, didn't regret it later. And that's a very minor example, but I think it's a little bit of a glimpse into what it is like to experience the presence of our God in full. When you encounter something amazing, when you encounter the transcendent God, you simply want to continue in that experience. Maybe we experience that in part, whether it's with a, a place or an event or a person, uh, when we experience those moments, other desires don't seem as important anymore. Even things as, central, as, as essential to our well-being as eating a meal. And when we come fully to terms with who God is and what he has done, all other concerns and desires recede to the background. That is what the praise of verses 4 and 5 of this passage call us to grasp. The praise of heaven invites us to come to God as he is so that we can experience him in full and align everything else about our existence around him so that we can have true life. And that praise continues into the next few verses as all of God's people join in this praise of God. And it's, it's similar terms to what we saw in verses 1 to 3, but the way John describes it, it's like it's the same, but the volume's been turned up a little more. As we'll see here in verses 6 to 8, John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. God is praised because he is planning a wedding. The story of scripture, all 66 books, every single page is the story of God preparing the way for a wedding. And that story begins with God creating, not because he felt incomplete, not because he needed something to make himself feel better, but because out of the perfect relationship that the Trinity has enjoyed for all eternity, God desired that others might experience that intimacy as well. God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden where they could enjoy his presence and they could enjoy one another in perfection, and yet sin broke what God created. And from that point on, God has been at work to set right what had gone wrong. He establishes a covenant with his people Israel so that they can be a light to the world, so that they can prepare the way for a king to come from them, the Messiah, the Savior, 
so that all people might be brought into relationship with him. And that king came and died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and will one day return to make all things new at the wedding of the Lamb, a wedding that we get to be a part of as both guest and bride. We've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. We've been purified from sin. We've been given fine linen to wear as a demonstration of what Christ has done. And in light of all of that, the only appropriate response is to praise our God. All of God's people praise him in this passage as he brings to completion what he has promised he will do. And that is what we have to look forward to. And that is a cause of celebration. One of the unique things about the line of work that I am in is that I have the opportunity to be up here uh, for weddings, to be able to stand up here next to the groom uh, as the bride comes down the aisle. And I always find that very entertaining to be able to watch all the emotions going on on the face of the groom in that moment. And I had the honor a few years ago to officiate the wedding of my my younger sister and my brother-in-law. And if I can brag on myself a minute, I did a lot of preparing for that day. I had entertained every scenario imaginable and how we would navigate it and felt right, really on top of things. I had considered everything except one uh, thing that got thrown into the mix. I'm standing on the stage with my brother-in-law. The doors open. My dad and my sister start walking down the aisle. And I can't see their face. They're, they're far enough away I can't make out their faces yet, but I can see my sister's shoulders are doing this little shiver thing that I know my sister well enough to know she only does when she is absolutely bawling in tears. And I think, well, that can't be good. And they get a little closer. I look at my brother-in-law. Tears are streaming down his face. He probably would say he didn't cry as much as I remember him crying, but that's what I remember. They get a little closer, and I can see my sister is just falling apart. My dad is doing everything he can to keep it together. And in that moment, I knew there was just one thing to do, and that was stare at the floor. I knew the only way we were making it through that, that ceremony was if, was if I just didn't make eye contact with anyone for the next however long it had to be. And that moment, whether you've experienced it yourself at your own wedding, whether you've just attended enough weddings to be able to see that uh, on, the, on the faces of other people, that moment is the moment that awaits all of God's people. God has redeemed us for the sake of relationship with him. And one day at Christ's return, that redemption will be made complete as we are brought into perfect relationship with our God, as we are clothed in the garments representing who we are as God's people. God's worthy of our praise because he is preparing a wedding banquet for us. God's goal for us is not just eternal life, although it does contain that. It is not just uh, being free from pain and suffering, although it does contain that. God's goal for us is that we would live in his presence for all eternity. All those other things we typically think of when we think of heaven, they're absolutely a component of that, but they are not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is the presence of our God. That is the end of God's people. That is the And that is the blessing pronounced over us in the last verse of this passage. In verse 9, the angel said to me, John says, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This passage does not end by telling us uh, God's going to twist our arm until we praise him. 
the end of this passage invites us to experience what this passage is praising God for, for ourselves. This is not a wedding for someone else that you sort of know and so you feel obligated to go and you sit through the whole ceremony hoping that the food at the reception is going to make it, make it worth going. This is a wedding we are invited to be a part of as both guests and bride. God is making preparations for a wedding banquet and he is inviting us to be a part of it. And God is worthy of praise because he has invited us to the banquet. We not only praise God for what he has done, we participate in the fruit of what he has done for ourselves and we look forward to the day when we will experience the fruit of what he has done in full. And that is why we gather together in worship. That is why we live life together as a community. That is why we follow where our God leads us. Our worship in the present prepares us for the life that is to come. Our gathering together week in and week out gives us a foretaste of that day when we, as a part of God's people, will be gathered together at this great wedding banquet and will experience the presence of God forever. And That is what we fix our eyes on. That is the hope we trust in no matter our present circumstances. That is the truth that undergirds everything else about our existence. We fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that he is with us, knowing that he will deliver us to the ultimate end of union with him for eternity. There's going to be a wedding. We're all invited. And it is an invitation that we have to respond to, each for ourselves. It is not one that we can respond by proxy for someone else. It is not one that we can have someone else take care of for us. It is a, an invitation we each have to deal with for ourselves. And if you need to respond to this invitation God has extended, if you have not yet said yes, that you will be there at the wedding supper of the Lamb, you can make that response even today. And if you do, I can promise you, you will not regret it. God is inviting each and every one of us in to be a part of his people. He's inviting us into life with him as we were created to live. And if you have questions, you feel the need to have a conversation with someone today before you walk out of here to pray with you to talk about what God is doing in your life and how you can, uh, can be faithful with where he is leading. Don't walk out of this building today without talking to someone, because there are so many people in this building who love you and care for you and want you to experience life with our God. No matter who we are, no matter how long it has been since we first said yes to following Jesus, this is the end we fix our eyes upon. We hold on to the gospel. We know that he's invited us in. We look forward to the day when the, when the banquet we have been invited to arrives and we get to go in and be a part. That is where we're called. That is why we live as God's people in the present. We, we remain faithful because we know that one day there's going to be a wedding and that we're all invited. So don't miss out. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for what you have done for us in Christ. That when we were sinners, when we were dead, when we were lost, that you came for us. That Christ has taken the punishment we deserve so that we could be resurrected into life with you. 
So, Father, we ask that you would give us faith, give us wisdom for how to respond appropriately to that reality this morning. If we've never said yes to, to that invitation, Father, give us, give us courage, faith to, to be able to take that next step of where you're leaving, where you're leading. If we have said yes before but need wisdom on how to, how to move forward, Father, we ask that you would give it to us, that you would give us community, people around us to help us respond appropriately. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've given us Christ, that you've given us one another, so that we might walk with you faithfully wherever you lead. Help us to do that well as your people. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.